0: Pepperidge Farm Milano. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the
0: podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today we're talking chocolate. Because, you know, October is coming up as we keep on mentioning. And I know a lot of you are going to be eating chocolate pretty soon. You're probably already snatching up those Reese's multi-packs at the store.
1: Well, and for us, it's late afternoon, which, of course, is that like crash time time of day. During the work day. Yeah, I just finished my uh, peanut butter M&M's. But my favorite, I love Dove and I love Godiva, but I'm really more of a salty person. But for purposes of this podcast, I'm I'm very into chocolate because, of course, we're
0: talking about the history of chocolate. But I have a question. So you've admitted you like chocolate well enough. If you were about to be sacrificed and you didn't quite feel up to dancing before your own death, would you maybe feel a little bit better if somebody gave you a chocolate drink, kind of perk you up? Uh, you know, I'm. I think I'm gonna have to go with a no on it, that one. It might have blood of like previously sacrificed victims in it.
1: Does that add a little enticement? I mean, if I if I could have a nice Coca Cola instead, w- is that an option? I don't think so. Chocolate or nothing, Katie. <laughs> well, I'm not an Aztec, so surely that's not the case for me, because this information was according to Chloe Dutra Russell, um, and these Aztec sacrifice victims got a gourd of chocolate mixed with victims' blood to, you know, perk them up if they were depressed for, you know, being human sacrifices.
0: I don't think that would do it for me. I think I'd still feel pretty sad, and there's cocoa in the break room. It doesn't have blood in it. I think I'm already set. I'd rather not be sacrificed. But this gives you a clue perhaps that the history of chocolate is a lot less
1: sweet than it might seem. So let's get down to basics and talk about where we get chocolate in the first place
0: that would be from the plant cacao and chocolate starts with this equatorial tree that grows fruit not from the tips of its branches like most trees but from its trunk and from its really thick branches it's very bizarre i would definitely recommend early in this podcast you go and google the cacao tree to see exactly what this looks like
1: yeah and it's the tree is called the theobroma cacao and its scientific name means food of the gods and it produces this small fruit with white pulp and seeds that we, of course, often call beans. And when we make chocolate today, the initial processing is much like it's always been. The seeds are harvested by hand. They're fermented for about a week and then dried and roasted. And things have changed a lot beyond that step. But uh, Sarah is going to tell you what usually happens today.
0: Yeah, usually after roasting, the beans are winnowed, which means the nib of the bean is removed from the husk and then from there you- You can use the husk as garden compost or animal feed. It smells really good still. And the nibs are ground into a liquid called chocolate liquor. And we have an article on the site called How Chocolate Works. And the author, Marshall Brain, compares this to how if you grind up solid peanuts, it makes liquidy peanut butter. If you're having a hard time imagining how a liquor comes from this hard, dried up nib. So if you let that harden, if you let that mixture you've created harden, you have pure chocolate, pure, very bitter chocolate, not the kind of thing you would want to eat, but maybe you would want to bake with it. And if you want to keep going, though, make it something palatable, you can keep processing it, running it through a cocoa press to remove the fat. And this leaves you with two main products. One is cocoa butter, which, of course, is used in a lot of cosmetic products. And the other is cocoa solids, which, if you grind those up, then you have cocoa powder. And then finally, we get to the point where we can add good stuff, like sugar and milk solids and flavors like vanilla. And you can perform further treatments to make the consistency, nice, smooth, delicious, chocolatey kind of thing we're used to, and also to treat it so it all sticks together, so it doesn't crumble into gross dust when you bite into a candy bar. with um, <laughs> like the really old one. <laughs> yeah. But those are the advanced treatments, the advanced uh, ways that we produce chocolate today to produce eating chocolate. But for almost its entire history, chocolate has not been a food. It's been a drink. And part of why we
1: picked this topic is because of National Hispanic Heritage Month, because chocolate is very much a Mesoamerican creation. So we're going to start with a tall ceramic cylinder of frothy chocolate foam, which was the stuff the uh, classic period Maya would drink back around 250 to 900 A.D. And this beverage isn't close to anything that we would recognize.
0: Not the cocoa in the break room.
1: No, it was made from cacao beans that have been fermented, dried, and... and roasted before being ground into a paste. And this paste was hardened into a cake that was then crumbled into water and poured back and forth to infuse it with air and make this foamy
0: froth. Kind of like a waterfall. They'd actually stand up and pour it from a, a height so it would just get as much air in there as possible. I keep picturing cocktail shakers. <laughs> um, it would sometimes
1: contain flowers, herbs, spices, or vanilla, but it was very, very bitter,
0: like if you mixed baking chocolate with water. That's the c- closest approximation you could make now. But it was a very... It was a very special drink, and it was favored by the royalty, even then, though it, it was still something that most people could drink on occasion. It was a special like champagne. Drink. It, it was pretty comparable to champagne, actually, something you would drink at births or weddings or celebrations. And archaeological evidence showed that most people had a tree growing in their yard. So it was something that people were exposed to. And it had religious significance, too. Akchua was a god of cacao growers and
1: merchants. But until recently, we didn't know of any chocolate use that came much before 500 B.C., which was dated from Mayan pottery found in northern Belize. But there was a more recent discovery that that changed our thoughts on that. So
0: yeah, in 2007, some scientists started running tests on a cache of pottery found in the Alua Valley, perhaps. And they discovered that this pottery had traces of theobromine, which is cacao's chemical calling card. That is chocolate. Yeah. I like that alliteration there. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the thing that makes chocolate, chocolate. And this the, the pottery that they found was a lot older than any of the stuff they had found before. It dated anywhere from 1400 B.C. to 1100 B.C. So suddenly we have definitive evidence of chocolate consumption way, way earlier than we had originally thought. So moving
1: on to the Aztec people and the famous introduction of chocolate to the West. In fact, the Aztec word for the frothy cacao beverage, which I am not going to try to pronounce, is where the word chocolate comes from. Starts
0: with an X, y'all.
1: <laughs> we don't do great with, with the words that start with an X, except for xylophone, maybe. Um, but the Aztec didn't just drink chocolate. They required it as a tribute. Cacao seeds were considered money, which is maybe the first push toward cacao as a commodity. And we found all sorts of trivia that we love, but according to a 16th century Aztec document, one cacao bean equaled one tamale, and 100 beans equaled one turkey hen.
0: Which, what are you going to do with one cacao bean? I would take the tamale, I think, there. I'm going to put it in the display of bizarre objects on my desk. (laughs) But the Aztecs also ascribed a lot of religious and ceremonial properties to the bean, so maybe that's why it would be good to have even just one bean. They also had a chocolate god named Quetzalcoatl who brought cacao from paradise. And it's interesting here, we're going to sort of venture outside of the Aztecs for a minute, but chocolate still has a lot of religious significance today. I mean, you probably... Eat it around Christmas. Maybe you get an, we always get an advent calendar and open oh, yes. each day you get your little piece of chocolate. Um, obviously Easter, a big chocolate eating holiday and Hanukkah. And in Mexico, it's included in Day of the Dead offerings. And sometimes it's, it's still included in the form of actual cacao seeds. So not just little tinfoil wrapped chocolates, but the real deal. And consequently, going
1: back to our Aztecs, chocolate was an elite beverage because, you know, it has all these religious and ceremonial properties and also because it was used as tribute. Um, and it was especially reserved for the rulers, the priests, the high soldiers, and the very wealthy. And that's why when Hernando Cortez showed up in the early 1500s, the Aztec king Montezuma offered him a drink. He thought Cortez was a visiting god.
0: So a couple of Big mistakes there, but Cortez doesn't even like the drink, so he's obviously not a god. And then he doesn't like the chocolate drink. But, I mean, that's understandable. It is pretty bitter and probably hard to take for European palates. So the conquistadors start mixing up the beverage, though. They can tell that something's going on with it. The Aztecs are very into cacao, so they start mixing it adding things like honey or sugar or vanilla, and they start heating it. So we're getting a little bit closer to what we think of as cocoa now. And they also started whisking it with a tool they called a molenillo instead of that pouring it back and forth cocktail shaker, froth approach. it up. <laughs> And
1: while Columbus had taken some cacao back to Spain after his fourth voyage in 1502, a popular legend has Dominican friars presenting Mesoamericans at court. The people offered chocolate as a gift, and things cut on from there. But really, only in the Spanish court and among high church officials, and it's amazing, but the Spanish were able to keep this secret for a really long time so they had this
0: secret drink that only the Spanish court knew about. It's it's almost a century of Spanish lockdown on chocolate, but finally, obviously, the word got out, and By the 1600s, a lot of Spanish princesses were going off and marrying into other royal houses and taking their chocolate with them. And you could find cocoa in courts across Europe. In France, it was supposedly introduced by Anne of Austria, who was the Spanish king's daughter. She married Louis XIII. And I was thinking, it's funny... It, since she's supposedly responsible for bringing chocolate to France, the imported French queens always bring, like, the best <laughs> stuff with them. Catherine de' Medici and the uh, fork, that's a pretty good one. Let this be a lesson to you all.
1: Uh, it became a royal monopoly, actually. And in the Spanish church, it became an acceptable fasting beverage, which is so funny because now that's something people often
0: give up for Lent. Yeah, exactly. Um And this is another sort of strange church related story but supposedly 18th century cardinals would drink it when they elected a new pope and it was so important and so much a part of the high church officials daily lives that maybe it disguised the poison that killed pope clement the 14th in 1774 so just a rumor there but what if chocolate killed you mysterious
1: pope death in 1657, the first chocolate house opened in London, and let's not think of that as this place people just went around sipping cocoa. It's like a romantic venue. <laughs> no, it was a place uh, for some. A lot of them are just for men, just to socialize and gamble and talk politics. Which, as Sarah said, it's hard to imagine getting very radical over cocoa. It's more of a, a comforting, traditional. I would uh-huh. say. Curl up
0: with your cocoa and your marshmallows on top, and. A in your book, book or something. Yes. But even while it's still an elite beverage, you know, it's not something that a whole lot of people are drinking in Europe. The demand for cacao became pretty intense very quickly. And so the Spanish and the English, Dutch and the French all started plantations, not just in Mesoamerica anymore, but all around the equator, anywhere that the cacao tree would be grow and it's a very intensive crop like a lot of new world crops where tobacco comes to mind Um, it It was a lot of work to grow it. And so the first people enslaved to produce cacao were the native Mesoamericans. But because a lot of them were so quickly wiped out by these imported European diseases, plantation owners turned to Africa and African slaves. And from the early 1600s to the late 1800s, most cacao was grown under slave labor. And even after
1: slavery was abolished, the working conditions on these farms continued to be atrocious. This isn't the right place in our timeline, but uh, by 1910, chocolate maker William Cadbury asked several companies to join him in boycotting companies that used unfair labor practices. Um, And that year, the U.S. banned cocoa produced by slave labor. But today, most cacao is produced by independent farmers who sell it as a global commodity through the coffee, sugar, and cocoa exchange. But that's the end stage of the industrialization of chocolate. In the 1700s, we were just at the beginning.
0: So let's jump back a little. Part of the reason why chocolate was so expensive and just for the elite is because it was an expensive import. Cacao was expensive. Sugar was expensive. But it was also expensive to produce the stuff, to grind the beans. It's a lot of work. And the beans would come from the New World fermented and dried already, but they'd be ground in Europe. So people spent the next few years trying to figure out how to process these as quickly and cheaply as possible. So we get wind-driven chocolate mills and horse-driven chocolate mills, which I kind of like the sound of that. Um, even a Way hydraulic- than, than
1: man-hauled sledges. <laughs> man-hauled
0: chocolate mills. Maybe not. Um, hydraulic machines to grind up the seeds. And finally, with the invention of the steam engine, we get a steam-powered chocolate mill. So at this point, Cacao could be ground in huge quantities really cheaply, really quickly, and it made it taste better, too. Suddenly, with all of this finely ground product, you could experiment and make some new products out of it.
1: Which is something, of course, important if it's going to be eaten as a solid. And from there, we've got a whole slew of inventions that followed to make chocolate what we know it today, something you mostly eat instead of something you mostly drink. In 1828, C.J. Van Houten of the Netherlands patented chocolate powder. He pressed out cocoa butter from ground and roasted beans and added alkaline salts to improve the powder's mixability. And in 1847, the English firm Fry & Sons combined cocoa butter with chocolate liquor and sugar to produce eating chocolate
0: which that's what we eat today. We just don't call it eating chocolate anymore. And in 1876, Daniel Peter and Henri Nestlé, or should we just say Nestlé? I keep thinking of the
1: Friends episode with Phoebe and Nestlé Toulouse.
0: (laughs) Her grandmother and the mysterious cookie recipe. Um, But anyways, those two add dried milk to make milk chocolate, which probably pushes the whole consumption of chocolate into a whole new realm. And another big thing is obviously advertising. Getting people to think they actually need chocolate it's something that they need to buy it's not as a treat too well as a treat but but a treat that is definitely within reach and turning chocolate not into just a drink or just a candy that you eat in bar form but something you cook with you make mousse and cake and frosting crucial
1: baking ingredient good job advertising Finally, chocolate started to become a global commodity in the late 1800s, and soldiers helped spread the taste for it worldwide. Queen Victoria sent her soldiers gifts of chocolate. We're saying she pops up in an awful lot of our podcasts where you least expect her. Yes. Um, and in World War I, chocolate was part of rations.
0: Yeah, but the bigger chocolate companies played a very large role in transforming chocolate into something that was not elite anymore but still a, a special treat you know like if you were buying nice chocolates today transforming it from something like that into something that you can just buy on impulse at the junkie mart in the lobby exactly it's <laughs> cheap it's late afternoon and you need to pick me up So the biggest American manufacturer, Milton Hershey, had a lot to do with that. He started his company in 1900 after visiting the Chicago World's Fair, which we always get requests for. um, He saw some chocolate-making machinery and went home with some of it in his own possession. You go to the fair and you buy machinery and started experimenting trying to figure out how the Swiss produced their famous chocolate and eventually getting the formula down. But there's still
1: one big market that hasn't gone chocolate crazy yet, and that's China. Apparently, the average Chinese person only eats 3.5 ounces of it a year. Compare that to 10 kilograms for the average Swiss, which is 22 pounds. That's a lot of chocolate. (laughs) So that is our history of chocolate, but I'm sure there are some little tidbits that we have missed. So if you have a little bit of chocolate history you'd like to tell us, email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we have a Facebook fan page where we like to be able to interact with all of you. And if you're looking for a little more about the technical process of chocolate being made. Plus pictures. Oh, plus pictures, which is always good. You can search for How Chocolate Works on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be
1: sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog
0: on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.
1: richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast.
0: Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay.
1: Be sharp and
0: die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal pop shot abilities and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming is our own Max Homa PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grind in and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.